You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. the eighth episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich, and here with me is someone who is always the better half of each show. Her name is Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Do you want to do the previously on the podcast bit? Sure. So previously on the podcast, we made a mistake. Well, that's right. Okay. So while listening to episode number seven, which sometimes I don't do for several days... I mean, obviously, I edit each show and put the segments together in the correct order and add the music and whatnot, but sometimes it's several days after an episode's release before I'll listen to the whole show from start to finish, mostly because I find it excruciatingly uncomfortable to listen to myself. But anyway, um, yes, there was a mistake with episode number seven. When we said Louis Armistead was mortally wounded during Pickett's Charge on July 5th, 1863 at Gettysburg, Uh, Pickett's Charge, of course, was actually on July 3rd, and then July 5th was the day that Armistead died from his wounds. So, sorry about that. Has our research assistant been reprimanded? Um, yes. I said that I couldn't watch Duck Dynasty at all this weekend. You don't even watch Duck Dynasty. (laughs) Well, just in case I got the urge to start watching it, I'm not allowed to. Do you think anyone is still listening at this point? Well, probably not, but let's pretend there's one person who hasn't been able to hit the stop button yet. Okay. Okay. So previously on the podcast... We finished talking about America's war with Mexico by following along with Winfield Scott and his army until they captured Mexico City in September 1847, and a fellow named Abraham Lincoln made his first appearance on the podcast. Now let's look at what happened after the United States victory against Mexico. When the news of the Americans' victory at Mexico City reached the previously skeptical Duke of Wellington, the Duke generously declared that Winfield Scott was, quote, the greatest living soldier, end quote. I wouldn't say beating Santa Ana was quite the equivalent of beating Napoleon. I know. That's why I said he generously declared Scott was the greatest living soldier. Um, But Wellington did have help beating Napoleon, while Winfield Scott did it all by himself. I mean, at Waterloo, if the Prussians hadn't shown up, then... the war with Mexico. Oh, right. Sorry. Um, Anyway, it wasn't until February 2nd, 1848, that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed just outside Mexico City. And with that one stroke of the pen, 
defeated Mexico was divested of half her land, a huge expanse of territory comprising present-day New Mexico, parts of Colorado, Idaho, and Wyoming, and all of Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and California, it was all eventually ceded to the United States. And that huge land grab must have warmed the cockles of President Polk's dark little... Rich. Expansionist heart. Rich. Oh. All right. So Rich keeps making references to President James Polk's ambitions with regard to expanding the territory controlled by the United States. But an argument can be made that he was just a product of his times, since we've already talked about America's idea of manifest destiny and how people thought it was almost the U.S.'s divine right to spread across the continent from sea to shining sea, and how the president was simply fulfilling that desire of the American people. Isn't that right, Rich? Well, maybe, but... Oh, no buts! As part of the treaty settlement, President Polk agreed to settle Mexico's long unpaid debts owed to American citizens and then also to a purchase price of $15 million more for the territory ceded to the U.S. And then remember that Polk's earlier 1846 border agreement with Britain had already added Washington State, Oregon, and most of Idaho to America's territory. Well, before we move on, we should probably mention, just because it's an interesting historical tidbit, um, that as a measure of how sick and tired a lot of Mexicans were of the constant political turmoil in their country, a group of Mexican movers and shakers actually approached Winfield Scott before he left Mexico City, and they proposed that the victorious, handsome, imposing American general resign from the U.S. Army and declare himself ruler of Mexico for a term of six years. Well, it's said that General Scott was touched by their offer and perhaps a bit amused by it, but needless to say, he declined it. Both generals Scott and Zachary Taylor came home from the war immensely popular. Scott would stay in the army, and he will figure into our story again when we get closer to the start of the Civil War. And then, as we'll soon see, Zachary Taylor's popularity will propel him to a run for the presidency, and he'll win, replacing Polk in the White House. As you guys will remember from our brief discussion of the controversy surrounding the Wilmot Proviso back in episode number six, the issue of slavery and its expansion had already been linked to the war with Mexico. Well, the debate over the Wilmot Proviso wouldn't go away. In fact, it only intensified after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed and ratified. Mexico had long ago outlawed slavery and its territory, but now that much of that territory belonged to the U.S., Southerners pressed for the expansion of slavery into the former Mexican lands, claiming it as their right, especially since the newly acquired territory had been won through victory in a war in which two-thirds of the volunteer soldiers had come from slave states. Well, naturally, Northerners opposed the South's demands. Instead, Northerners insisted on the terms of the Wilmot Proviso, that is, that slavery be banned in any territory gained from the war with Mexico. Not surprisingly, the controversy over the further expansion of slavery was a pivotal issue in the 1848 presidential election. 
Since President Polk had pledged to only serve a single term, the Democrats nominated Lewis Cass. He was a former territorial governor of Michigan and a member of Andrew Jackson's cabinet. Cass favored popular sovereignty, which was the idea that the people of a territory would vote on whether the territory would join the Union as a slave state or a free state, and then the federal government would be bound to respect the people's decision. But, in a move that would have far-reaching consequences, disaffected anti-slavery Democrats helped form a new political party that emerged for the election of 1848, the Free Soil Party. Free Soilers supported the terms of the Wilmot Proviso, and their motto was Free Soil, Free Speech, Free Labor, and Free Men. They nominated former President Martin Van Buren. And then the Whigs... The Whigs, W-H-I-G-S, were a major American political party back in the olden days. That's correct. Thank you. The Whigs nominated the immensely popular Zachary Taylor as their candidate. Anti-slavery northern Whigs were dismayed that Taylor was a slave owner, but they consoled themselves that at least Taylor had not taken any public position on the expansion of slavery into the new territories. Pro-slavery Southern Whigs, on the other hand, chose to believe Taylor was solidly their man, since he was not only a Southerner, but he was a slave owner with plantations in Louisiana and Mississippi. Despite their differences, the majority of Whigs closed ranks behind Taylor, since they viewed the split between the Democrats and the Free Soilers as a golden opportunity for the Whigs to win the election. And sure enough, the Free Soilers took enough votes away from the Democrats to give the presidency to the Whigs. And so old Zach managed to squeak out a relatively narrow victory, winning 163 electoral votes to Lewis Cass's 127. And just as a side note, James Knox Polk, the country's 11th president, would die, probably of cholera, in June 1849, just three months after leaving the White House. While in office, Polk was responsible for the acquisition of more territory than any other president in American history. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. 
To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1848, while the presidential contest was in full swing back east, a momentous discovery was made out west in California, a discovery that would send America down the road toward disunion and possible civil war. Out in California in January 1848, workers constructing a sawmill near Sacramento for a man named John Sutter found gold nuggets in a riverbed. Word of the discovery quickly reached San Francisco and gold fever started to spread. In August 1848, word of the discovery out in California reached the East Coast, and soon enough a rush of treasure seekers was heading west. Some 80,000 would-be prospectors reached California in 1849. Most of those 49ers found nothing but hard work, hard times, and frustration, but their numbers swelled the population of the region to such a degree that Congress was soon wrestling with the question of how to set up a proper territorial government in California and also one in New Mexico. The creation of territorial governments in the lands acquired from Mexico was a hot-button topic, since it was connected with the question of the expansion of slavery, and so the issue of what to do with California and New Mexico was fuel to the fire of the bitter sectional battle already raging in Congress. During the short congressional session that expired on March 4, 1849, fistfights between Northerners and Southerners broke out in both the House and Senate and hot-headed members of Southern congressional delegations threatened secession. Undaunted by Southern threats, Northern congressmen in the House of Representatives once again endorsed the terms of the Wilmot Proviso. They also drafted a territorial bill for California that excluded slavery. For good measure, they passed a resolution calling for the banning of the slave trade in the District of Columbia, and then they even mulled over a bill to abolish slavery itself in the capital. Well, as you might guess, these provocative actions enraged the Southern Congressional delegations, and they used their voting power in the Senate to defeat them all. But then when Zachary Taylor took office as the nation's 12th president in March 1849, to everyone's surprise, he had an opinion about the expansion of slavery after all, and it was not an opinion that Southerners liked. You see, his decades of service in the Army had helped old Zach see beyond the narrow scope of sectional concerns, and instead had given him a national perspective. Plus, being a rookie, novice politician, Taylor was influenced by anti-slavery northern Whigs like William Henry Seward of New York. And so President Taylor proposed and put into action a plan that would allow New Mexico and California to bypass the need for territorial organization and instead apply directly for statehood and Taylor made no bones about the fact that he meant for New Mexico and California to both apply for admission to the Union as free states. Well, Taylor's plan absolutely incensed Southerners. They felt betrayed since they had fully expected that Taylor, as president, would identify himself with their region's interests, especially the expansion of slavery into the territories. And so our old friend John C. Calhoun of South Carolina proposed that a convention of slaveholding states be called as a way of bringing about the unity necessary to protect Southern interests. He said, quote, I have believed from the first that the agitation of the subject of slavery would, if not prevented by some timely and effective measure, end in disunion, end quote. The governor of Virginia supported Calhoun's call for a Southern convention. 
the governor told his legislature that if the Wilmot Proviso was approved by both houses of Congress, quote, then indeed the day of compromise will have passed, and the dissolution of our great and glorious union will become necessary and inevitable, end quote. Calhoun's convention proposal was approved by all the slaveholding states, and they agreed to meet in Nashville, Tennessee, in June of the next year, 1850. The most extreme of those who planned on attending the convention, that is, the real fire-eaters, intended to use the meeting as a forum to initiate the secession of the southern states. But then in January 1850, an aging and tired 73-year-old Henry Clay of Kentucky once more stepped into the breach and attempted to find a compromise that would accommodate the various competing political interests. He proposed eight resolutions resolutions, and he was hopeful the entire package would pass, since there seemed to be something for everybody. Basically, Clay's plan would, one, admit California as a free state, two, permit the settlers of New Mexico and Utah to use popular sovereignty to decide whether to organize their territories as slave or free states, three, ban the slave trade, but not slavery, in the District of Columbia, and four, provide for a tougher national fugitive slave law. For almost six months, the Senate debated what Clay called his comprehensive scheme. But Clay's compromise didn't satisfy the ailing John C. Calhoun. The old fire-eater was too sick in March 1850 to speechify himself, so Calhoun sat in silence, observing the Senate chamber like some sort of gloomy, avenging angel, while he had James Mason of Virginia read his rebuttal of Clay's scheme. Calhoun's speech declared that, quote, The southern states cannot remain, as things now are, consistently with safety and honor in the Union. End quote. But by this time there were many in the northern congressional delegations who were tired of making concessions to the South over the issue of slavery, and they were irritated by the South's constant use of disunion as a threat. Younger northern congressmen, men such as Salmon P. Chase of Ohio, Hannibal Hamlin of Maine, and William Seward, were against Clay's scheme. In a speech that infuriated Southerners by daring to question the morality of slavery, Seward condemned Clay's proposals and asserted that the Constitution gave Congress the power to prohibit slavery in the territories. But more importantly, he said, quote, there is a higher law than the Constitution. End quote. Seward's, Seward's higher law speech and its condemnation of slavery on moral grounds enraged Southerners. They said it was, quote, monstrous and diabolical, end quote. And then, adding to the drama playing out in Congress, Daniel Webster surprised many people and drew howls of outrage from anti-slavery newspapers back in his home state of Massachusetts, when he took the floor and gave a three-hour speech endorsing Clay's compromise. Webster said he rose, quote, to speak today not as a Massachusetts man, nor as a northern man, but an American man. I speak today for the preservation of the Union. Hear me for my cause, end quote. Webster's eloquence and his earnest desire to save the Union were not enough to save his career and reputation, which in the eyes of many were forever tainted by his willingness to make yet more concessions to the slaveholding states. Despite strong opposition from important factions in both the North and South, Henry Clay never stopped trying to cobble together support for his resolutions. 
Anxious and upset that the country he loved appeared to be moving toward disunion and civil war, Clay pleaded for his colleagues in the Senate, quote, to pause, solemnly pause, at the edge of the precipice before the fearful and disastrous leap is taken into the yawning abyss below, which will inevitably lead to certain and irretrievable destruction, end quote. The exhausted and discouraged Clay then said that his prayer was, quote, as the best blessing which heaven can bestow upon me upon earth, that if the direful and sad event of the dissolution of the Union should happen, I may not survive to behold the sad and heart-rending spectacle. End quote. Through all of this turmoil in the halls of Congress, President Taylor had refused to back down, and he still wanted to see California admitted immediately as a free state, and then New Mexico, which was dragging its feet, admitted as a free state when it was ready. When two Southern congressmen, Robert Toombs and Alexander Stevens, both from Georgia, met with Taylor to warn him that the South would never submit to such insults, old Zach in no uncertain terms told them that he would enforce the country's laws and hang any traitors he caught, including Toombs and Stevens. President Taylor afterward told an associate that he had always thought the North was the aggressor in sectional disputes, but since taking office, he had become convinced that Southerners were, quote, intolerant and revolutionary, end quote. So remember back in March, we said John C. Calhoun was ailing? Well, he died that month on March 31st, 1850. And then Henry Clay, after his compromise package was picked apart and then finally defeated that summer, he left the Senate sick with tuberculosis. He would die in less than two years, in June 1852. And a dejected Daniel Webster returned to Massachusetts, where he was vilified for his support of Clay's compromise. He would die four months after Clay. So Calhoun was gone, Clay and Webster were done, and then on a scorching hot July 4, 1850, President Taylor attended festivities at the unfinished Washington Monument. Taylor apparently gulped down vast amounts of cherries and iced milk, and then once he was back at the White House, gulped down several glasses of water. Well, somewhere along the line that day, probably from bacteria in either the milk or water he drank, the president apparently came down with a deadly case of cholera. Old Zach didn't last long. He died on the evening of July 9th. And at that point... With the United States still perched on the edge of that precipice of disunion that Clay had described, two new actors entered the spotlight, Millard Fillmore and Stephen Douglas. On July 10th, the day after Zachary Taylor's unexpected death, his vice president, Millard Fillmore, a New Yorker, was sworn into office as the 13th president of the United States. With regard to the battle that had been raging in Congress, Fillmore quickly let it be known that he supported compromise. Stephen Douglas, a Democrat and the junior senator from Illinois, confidently seized the opportunity that presented itself now that Calhoun, Clay, and Webster were out of the picture in the Senate, and now that a more flexible chief executive was sitting in the White House. Douglas cleverly remolded Clay's proposals, proposals into five different bills, and then skillfully built separate coalitions of his fellow Democrats around each of those bills. With President Fillmore doing some arm-twisting behind the scenes to get Whigs to support Douglas's bills, by mid-September, Douglas's compromise package had been passed by Congress, signed by the President, and had become law. 
Stephen Douglas's set of bills, which Douglas freely admitted were essentially the same measures that Clay had proposed, became known as the Compromise of 1850, and their passage was greeted with sighs of relief and celebrated with much rejoicing, since most people believed the Compromise had averted disunion and civil war. In Alan Gelso's book, Fateful Lightning, he writes, What exactly did this great compromise of 1850 do? In general, it averted a showdown over who would control the new western territories, and that was the chief reason people around the country celebrated the passage of the bills with bell ringing and in Congress with a drunken spree. In specific terms, the Compromise of 1850 allowed the Missouri Compromise to stand for the old Louisiana Purchase Territories, but it established the principle of popular sovereignty as the rule for organizing the Mexican Session. California, of course, was allowed to dodge both the compromises completely and enter the Union directly as a free state without passing through the debated stage of territorial government. The territory of Utah, which lay above the 3630 line, and New Mexico, which lay below it, would be allowed to make their own determinations about slavery or non-slavery as they saw fit. The compromise also added a new fugitive slave law to the federal code. After the deaths of Calhoun, Clay, and Webster, Douglas would emerge as one of the most powerful men in the Senate. End quote. But what of that convention of slaveholding states that John C. Calhoun had championed? The convention did meet in Nashville in June 1850, but, mer- but remember that Calhoun had died back in March, and delegates from six slave states didn't even show up. So those who did attend the convention decided it would be best to adopt a wait-and-see attitude and reconvene after Congress had acted one way or another. And so after Douglas's compromise package was passed that fall, the Nashville Convention met again in November 1850. Again, only about half the delegates showed up, but they passed resolutions denouncing the compromise and affirming the right of secession. They also proposed another meeting at some time in the future of another Southern Rights Convention. But the radical fire-eaters from South Carolina left Nashville bitterly disappointed. They were convinced that a marvelous opportunity for the South to break away from the Union had been missed, and so they vowed that next time, and they were sure that sooner or later there would be a next time, they wouldn't make the mistake of trying to build a consensus at another useless convention. No, next time they decided, South Carolina would act alone and expect that their fellow slaveholding states would follow their lead. Well, those of you who have read ahead in the story know that it would take ten years for there to be another next time. But when that next time did come in 1860, South Carolina didn't waste time on another convention. No, South Carolina did indeed take the lead in seceding from the Union, and one by one, their fellow southern slaveholding states did indeed follow their lead. And then in April 1861, the war came, and America, north and south, plunged into that yawning abyss of which Henry Clay had spoken. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. Our recommendation for this episode is At the Edge of the Precipice, Henry Clay and the Compromise that Saved the Union by Robert V. Remini. The inside cover of this book says, 
1850, America hovered on the brink of disunion. Tensions between slaveholders and abolitionists mounted as the debate over slavery grew rancorous. The addition of vast new territory in the wake of the Mexican War had prompted northern politicians to demand that new states remain free. In response, southerners baldly threatened to secede from the Union. Only Henry Clay, America's great compromiser, could keep the Union together. In At the Edge of the Precipice, prize-winning historian Robert V. Remini offers a fascinating recounting of the Compromise of 1850, a titanic act of political will that only a skillful statesman like Clay could broker. Although the Compromise would collapse ten years later when the nation plunged into civil war, Clay's victory in 1850 ultimately gave the North much-needed time to build its industrial might so that it could defeat the South once secession was at hand. It also gave the North time to find a leader, Abraham Lincoln, who had the capacity and resolve to successfully reunite the country. A masterful narrative by a major historian, at the edge of the precipice is a portrait of political leadership at its finest and a timely reminder of the importance of bipartisanship in a bellicose age. You can find all of our book recommendations on the show's website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. On the website, you can also find a link to the show's Facebook page, which we hope you check out sometime, since besides updates when we release new episodes, there on Facebook we're also doing some creative stuff with Civil War-related quotes and facts. And while you're there on the show's Facebook page, be sure to like us. Okay, so as we close, we'll remind you that the music we use to start and end each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water and is used by permission of Spiritwood Music. We thank them for that, and thank all of you for listening to episode number 8 of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you.